Hey, everybody. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today on our show... I think my time of confession as a writer may be over or over for now. Well, maybe as a writer, but not necessarily as an interviewee. That is Jonathan Ames. Uh, when I first interviewed him many years ago, uh, he was known primarily as a novelist and uh, author of self-revealing essays about various misadventures, sexual and otherwise... The sort of thing uh, Jonathan was referring to as confessional and that he doesn't do anymore. These days, he says... I kind of spread my issues around all the characters. And by that, he means his TV characters, because in the intervening years since we last talked, Jonathan has become well-known as a TV writer. He created the HBO series Bored to Death, which ran from 2009 through 2011. And uh, now he has a new series out on the Stars Network. It's called Blunt Talk. It stars Patrick Stewart is a cable news host on the verge of a nervous breakdown. As with all of Jonathan's writing, there is a sense of good-natured characters trying to do their best in the face of a lot of confusion and um, what people like me lazily lump under the heading of neurosis. Jonathan is not only the creator of the series, he is also what is known in the TV biz as the showrunner, the um, guy who's in charge of everything. And this conversation that you're about to hear gave me a chance to find out exactly what's involved with that job and how one makes the transition from desk-bound writer to manager of sorts. As you'll hear, Jonathan says it's both a joy and pretty stressful. Anyway, uh, do stay tuned. I certainly enjoyed this conversation with Jonathan. I think you will, too. We ranged over all kinds of territory, not just uh, showbiz and his relationship to various actors that he's had the pleasure of working with, but also his uh, ever-interesting life and struggles and loves and losses. Jonathan, how are you? Oh, life, you know, like everyone interviewed on the radio or not, there's all sorts of issues, and and I think that sort of dominates my life at the moment, but I'm also okay. I, I, I'm able to rent a nice house. I have a cup of coffee, so I have a, a good life. Are you in L.A.? Yes, I'm in L.A., do you still consider Brooklyn home, though? I guess home is where the bed is that I sleep most often in, and so that, that would be L.A. And, yeah, Brooklyn's not my home anymore. I, it kind of, I don't know, all dissolved for me there, like ashes in a fireplace or something. So when did you relocate? Uh, about a year ago in August, uh, 13 months ago, I moved here to Dublin Talk. It's a big change. Do you feel like you're an Angelino? You know, the one home I had was my childhood home, and uh, we sold that in the past year. So I don't know that anything will ever feel quite like a home again to me unless maybe I become more settled in myself and more settled as a human being. Um, and then same thing with identity. I guess for a long time, maybe I did think of myself as a New Yorker or that was a label other people put on me, which I was more than happy to have, you know, sort of like when you get traded to a baseball team. Now you're a New York Yankee or now you're a San Diego Padre. But I don't think of myself as an Angelino, but I, I do like living here after, you know, I was born in New York. I'm 51, sort of after more or less 51 years in and around New York, I really needed a change and I'm finding Los Angeles to be kind of an amazing change. 
uh, at least as a place. I, I'm enjoying the place. Internally, the place doesn't necessarily change the weather inside you, but the weather outside is certainly nice, and I, I'm liking discovering Los Angeles. So you went there to shoot Blunt Talk, your new oh. series on stars, starring Patrick Stewart. Um the shooting, I assume, at least the first season, it's been in the can for a while now. It's now on air. Um, mm-hmm. What happens for you, the creator, the showrunner, when things start airing? I mean, other than a lot of interviews like this, what's your life like at this point since it's all created, you know, at least that first season? Yeah, well, it's really um, a 12-month out-of-the-year job. I finished uh, post-production July 10th, maybe two months ago now and then spent the last two months having to sort of promote the show, um, begin making, you know, decisions for season two, who to hire, who to bring back, who to let go uh, in terms of the whole crew. You know, when you're the showrunner, you're kind of in charge of about 200 people. And then also during this time, I've started uh, writing up my documents of ideas for season two, and I begin officially working on season two September 14th. So there's almost really no downtime, um, though this is the closest I come to downtime, which is I can just sort of noodle around and begin dreaming about season two without the pressure of the writers gathering and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, so it's, it's really a full-time job. I mean, like 10 episodes of a TV show that we shot from January to April. That was 300 pages of scripts, which I wrote or co-wrote. And then, you know, three and a half months of filming, which is about 70 to 80 hours a week of work. And then two months after that of post-production, which is like 50 to 60 hours a week of work. It's basically like creating three feature films in a year and shooting them, uh, at least lengthwise. And, And we're somewhat ambitious cinematically. So it's, we are trying to go for some beautiful things. So it's not like just shooting uh, on a stage, you know, like all in the family kind of TV show. <laughs> and so it's a lot of work and it's a full-time job. Yeah. I mean, I, I get it. The fact that you do the writing and you run the show is a huge amount of work. I mean, you obviously are, you come from a background as a writer, you know what it's like to sit and make uh, marks on pages, but running an entire operation. Were you the showrunner on Board to Death as well? Yes. Mm-hmm. So you've you've been broken in. It's yeah, not that, your first that's rodeo. Where I cut my teeth, as it were. <laughs> yeah, but still, that must have been a huge adjustment uh, for a, a a guy used to uh, privacy and aloneness and and creating by himself to have to manage a whole bunch of people and have so much um, at stake. I mean, uh, Board to Death, an HBO show with. An incredible all-star cast, um, and now Blunt Talk with also a great cast. Tell me about that adjustment. Yeah, I mean, initially, I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, I, I was an obscure novelist, um, and then I was given the keys to this production, <laughs> and and I just somehow really learned on the spot, and had great people around me, of course, guiding me, and I guess because it was my script, the world I had invented, I just had to take the leadership reins. Um, I'm now used to it, you know, after three years of Bored to Death and now a year of Blunt Talk. But I, I had a, 
a fair amount, in my own way, preparation, not maybe the typical path of a showrunner who might begin as a staff writer on a show or a writer's assistant work their way up. But I've been a teacher. I had taught hundreds of hours of classes. And so leading a class and having to explain to a class what you're doing is not unlike talking to a writer's room or talking to a whole crew. You know, you need to be able to communicate. You need to be able to lead. And then also in New York in the 90s and into the 2000s, I used to put together kind of nights of cabaret. And so, again, I would gather talent and curate. So these things, I think, have somewhat prepared me for the more social leadership aspects of running a show, but still not at the level of, you know, having to be in charge of millions of dollars of a budget and having a cast of great actors and dealing with a network and a studio. I mean, the level of human interaction is is immense to create this entertainment, to create an amusement for strangers out in the world, which is why I guess I do it, which is that, well, I like to make things that gives me a sense of purpose and makes me feel useful on the planet. And then I want to make things to entertain someone I don't know or to amuse them or to delight them or to make them feel less alone. And and so that kind of is the reason behind it all. Um, I have to say, I knew you, of course, as a writer first. We met a long time ago. And at that time, you were just proposing a TV series. You'd never done it before. Uh, at that time, I think you were shopping something to Showtime, a sitcom of some kind, um, with some, I think, some autobiographical elements in it. Mm-hmm, uh, th- mm-hmm. That didn't fly, but then some years later, you got bored to death. And as someone who knew you, um, I was both rooting for you and worried for you. Like, oh, God, will Jonathan be able to pull this off? I mean, mm-hmm. this is so different. And you did. I mean, Bored to Death was absolutely delightful. Um, I was stunned when it was uh, dropped after three, what I thought were highly successful seasons. Um but uh, I was like that first couple episodes. I was nervous for you, you know. But but you took to it. Obviously, the show just uh, you know from the get go, it uh, it cohered. It had its own character, which was very much um, Amesian, and uh, it it just was off and running. And the same thing. Uh, I've seen a couple episodes of Blunt Talk. It's very different, um, but uh, it has its own um, personality and uh, tremendous energy. Patrick Stewart is um, amazing at uh, comedic acting, I think. Uh, (laughs) But actually, for our listeners, we should probably uh, describe the premise of Blunt Talk, since they may not have seen it. I will add, though, that people who have, like, cable uh, can see the first two episodes, even if they're not stars subscribers. That's what Mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think they're somehow available for free. And, And if you're a download person, there is a stars app called Stars Play. It's like the HBO Go or the Showtime app, and one can get the Stars app, and I believe you could then watch uh, Blunt Talk that way. Good to know. So tell us the uh, the premise. Well, the premise is uh, Patrick Stewart plays Walter Blunt, who's a cable news host, and it's a little bit, you know, again, one uses comparisons a lot in television, but it's a little bit like the Larry Sanders show, and that, you know, here's a media personality, but the show really exists behind the scenes with the other characters around him or kind of like a family. 
his staff, and uh, again, to use Hollywood language, to me, it's a mashup uh, between Network and T.G. Woodhouse. Network, obviously, famously about a, a newscaster, Howard Beale, who's kind of losing his mind on air. And that's sort of where Blunt Talk begins, but uh, the Walter <laughs> Blunt character, Patrick Stewart, isn't quite as mad as Howard Beale and sort of reins himself in. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to churn out episode after episode if he was at a peak of mad frenzy all the time. But he's a little bit of a loose cannon, but a well-intentioned loose cannon. And I'd say it's a cross between T.G. Woodhouse and Network because he also has a manservant. Walter Blunt character is English. I got the idea for it. Um, Seth MacFarlane is my executive or fellow executive producer, and he was looking to make a comedy with Patrick Stewart and was looking for a writer to come up with an idea for the comedy. And so the night before my phone call with Seth MacFarlane, I happened to see uh, Piers Morgan on CNN, and I kind of thought, well, Patrick Stewart would look amazing behind an anchor <laughs> desk with an an electric blue background around him. So that's kind of where I got the idea. So I, I hope that explains the premise a little bit. But he, he's surrounded by this incredible cast. Uh, his manservants played by Adrian Scarborough. Jackie Weaver of Silver Linings Playbook is uh, his manager and producer of the new show. She, she plays a character named Rosalie. We have Dolly Wells as one of the head writers. She's been on the HBO show Doll and M. Tim Sharp is a head writer. He plays a character named Jim. He was on the HBO show Enlightened. So we have a wonderful cast around him. Richard Lewis plays uh, his uh, psychoanalyst. And so I took perhaps the most neurotic yeah. comedian <laughs> in America and made him um, the person who's trying to help all these people. Eventually he gets all the uh, members of the staff onto his couch. He has a portable Freudian. We have quite a, a wonderful cast uh, Moby the rock star oh yeah yeah himself. Romney Malco a wonderful actor plays you know the network president so we just uh yeah have a riches of wonderful actors on the show you said um you are trying to uh give it a, a look that goes way beyond the typical sitcom for sure mm -hmm. it opens with a scene in a bar that is um Honestly, the, the look of it reminds me of a Coen Brothers film almost. Yeah, well, it sort of started with Bored to Death. Like once I realized, well, an obvious thing, like this is a visual medium, you know, and I've got all these great tools. Let's make it beautiful and interesting. And again, to I've said this before, but C.G. Woodhouse was a big influence. And I once read a line from him where he said, try to give pleasure with every sentence. And so with every scene... I try to give pleasure, if possible, you know, speaking with the director and the DP, the director of photography. And I also think it helps with the comedy by having it be beautiful or elegant. Um, the absurdity of the situation maybe feels more plausible. Anyway, we, we try to make the show look beautiful. I, I try to reference lots of different films or images that I've loved in movies. And uh, I just want I want the audience to be pleased. And then also, too, it makes it fun for the crew to try to aim for something on a higher level, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like, let's use everyone's skills. Let's not just have it be, you know, 
simple comedy without any thought to the lighting or anything like that. Well, yeah, that opening scene says uh, we care about lighting, we care about cinematography. Uh, like I say, it's reminiscent of a Coen Brothers look. Also, uh, the bar scene, I think, in The Shining, maybe a little bit. Yeah, that's what someone said. I, that that wasn't necessarily the intention. We found that bar, and there was a great Art Deco sort of light fixture of a sort right in the center of the bar. And the director, Tristram Shapiro, immediately felt like, okay, we'll put Patrick right there in the middle, and we'll push in on him. And that was very much the director. Um, you know, taking my script and, and bringing his artistry and talent to it. Um, I wanted the bar to feel elegant and I wanted a sense of the man alone drinking, slightly melancholic, telling a story. Do you get involved, though, with the photography? Do you look through the lens? Do you say, I want it to look this way? Um, I don't get involved on that level. I've I've become more aware of different lenses will create a different feeling. We actually did a reshoot on that scene, and there was a lens we had used in our first um, version of it that I did somewhat prefer. It created a greater sense of intimacy. Um, I'm at the monitor with the director, but I don't say, oh, you know, light it like this, shoot it like that. I I kind of am sort of the co-pilot with the director, um, and I'm there primarily for the performance and making sure that the comedy works. Because unlike a drama, okay, you just got to get the information across and hopefully the performance is good. But if we don't have any time to rehearse, really, we do one table read. And, and to go from reading around the table to actually being on the set, suddenly things might not work or might not be funny. And so I have to be prepared, you know, to quickly change it or cut a line or add a line. And So that sounds really hard. I mean, to write is hard enough even when you've got solitude and when you've got time, but to do it on a set to adjust the dialogue, is that something you're, you're good at? Are you good at like changing stuff on the fly? Um, I like to do that to sort of be spontaneous. You know, I'm always drinking coffee when we're shooting and, you know, I mean, yeah, it's fun to change a line at the last moment if the actor is okay with it or, you know, or to, Hey, can you try a take where you say this, you know, and, um, it, or in rehearsal, the actor might add a line, just sort of joking around. I'm like, you know, actually, that's really funny. Or they pick up a prop that, you know, we didn't know would be on the set. And so it's, um, you know, it's, it's 90% planned. And then, then there's like 10% of improvisation. I mean, some scenes, you know, don't change a word from the way it's written. Um, other scenes, realize, you know what, let's cut it off right here. Or can you say this instead, you know, now that you've really heard it out loud. So I like that. It's a challenge. Can you think of any good examples from those first couple episodes? You know, I really can't. Um, we shot those probably back in late January, February, and I'd have to, I haven't rewatched anything in a while. I'd have to watch and be like, oh, yeah, we added that at the last moment. So, um, yeah, I can't. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Well, uh, just by way of preparation for this interview, I was watching uh, a couple of episodes of Bored to Death, uh, mm-hmm. which I hadn't watched since it originally aired. And uh, I found that episode, one of the episodes where you actually did <laughs> sort of a cameo. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a scene where um, Zach Galifianakis, who plays a cartoonist, a comic book artist, 
writer. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And Jason Schwartzman, who's the star, who plays a writer turned sort of wannabe detective. They're talking about a, um, well, a stalker who, who turns out to be you uh, has mm-hmm. uh, left a voodoo doll image of uh, Zach Galifianakis uh, mm-hmm. on his doorstep with the tip of an exacto uh, blade shoved into it. <laughs> and and uh, Galifianakis says, the nib of an exacto blade. And Jason Schwartzman says, nib, nib, interesting word, nib. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder if that was something you came up with on the spot. I don't remember. I think that might have been written because, you know, once I wrote down nib or you know, found out that it was called nib, it was like nib, nib. Um, but, yeah, that was some funny stuff with that uh, voodoo doll. And I don't know. Those guys are so great. A lot of that episode was about being insecure about one's, the size of one's genitals. So I thought, well, if I'm going to write this, I might as well really put it all out there. And so I think I was first showrunner ever to do full frontal nudity. Of course, later Lena Dunham did, but uh, but that was a very frightening experience and the air conditioning was on very high and I'm, uh, you know, I guess in the resting state, you know, it probably looked like an Italian sculpture. You know, those guys <laughs> never looked like that enormous or anything. And But with the air conditioning and the fear... And I probably did some kind of yoga thing in my mind. I shrunk things down even more. It was so profoundly humiliating. And in the middle of my full frontal nudity scene with Zach Alphanakis, he pulled out his cell phone and took a picture, burning a tape. But, uh, and then HBO made me cut probably the funniest moment in that thing when I'm running around the bed and Zach is chasing me, but he's falling face down on the bed. But he reaches out to grab me. And he grabs my phallus, and uh, we no. look at each other. You know, of course, you, you, you wouldn't have seen that because it was shot from behind, you know? And we both give each other kind of a home alone look. And then uh, and then he lets go, and I run off. But damn, HBO made me cut that scene. <laughs> so it's on the DVD extra, though I'm probably three people have ever seen it. HBO, famous for doing everything on TV, showing everything on TV. Why did they want you to cut that? I don't know. I don't know. Look, I'm still moaning about it (laughs) four four or five years later. It also made me cut a moment between Zach Alphanakis and Olympia Dukakis where she uh, was giving him a bath. They had become lovers in season three, and she digitally may have um, uh, introduced herself to his body uh, while giving him a bath. And uh, they made me cut that, too. So they made me cut two very funny scenes with Zach Galifianakis over two years. But HBO was wonderful to me, other than making me cut those two scenes. (laughs) Now, when you say she introduced herself to his body, you mean? You'd have to see the scene, but Olympia Dukakis is giving Zach Galifianakis a bath. And they were really happy to meet their both of Greek heritage, and they had wonderful chemistry together. And um, so while she, her character gives his character a bath, he says, can you tell me that story again? So she tells him the story of a deep-sea diver who found two large pearls and a bar of gold. So the two large pearls would be his testes, the bar of gold was his phallus. And then she said, then the diver went into a scary cave, and that's when she introduced her digits into 
maybe a scary cave of his body, and he squealed. And then right at that moment, his girlfriend walks in and finds this going on in her bathtub. And But HBO made me cut the introduction of the digit into his scary cave. But like I said, HBO was wonderful to me and only made me cut those. Well, you know, those were two scenes that hurt that I had to cut. And he grabbed my phallus and when her digits went into his cave. Adventures in Euphemism with my guest, mm-hmm. Jonathan Ames. You're reminding me of Henry Miller. He had some cave-like language that he used mm-hmm. from time to time, mm-hmm. diving in caves and pearls and mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, back to uh, – y- you mentioned uh, your embarrassing um, moments on uh, Bored to Death as the character Irwin. We should say that you just – to, just to make it clear for listeners who may not have seen that, uh, Irwin – um, is routed from Zach Galifianakis's ex-girlfriend's bed by Zach Galifianakis. That's why that's why he's nude. That's why you were nude, except for a pair of socks. Well, I was nude. He was dressed. Exactly. Exactly. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's why you were nude, except for a pair of socks and a kippah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a nice touch there. The kippah. Yeah. I. I guess I don't know. I. Yeah. I didn't want to make fun of the character, but I'm bald, so maybe I wanted a hat of some kind on. I don't know if it <laughs> added to the silliness of it or just my own Jewish insecurity. I just was putting it all out there, you know, shrunken genitals, wearing a yarmulke. I couldn't have made myself more a figure of strange mockery. Who knows what inner self-loathing demons I was trying to exercise unsuccessfully. Um, yeah, that's a place you've gone before in your in your writing, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. bearing things that uh, a lot of people uh, keep covered. Mm-hmm. And to do so, I mean, a lot literally of... <laughs> and metaphorically, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and a lot of people love you for that. I mean, really, I mean, people really appreciate it. I know your fans appreciate it because you're doing it for the rest of us, right? You're saying, well, yeah, I, but I'm not. I don't really do it anymore. I, I stopped writing like directly autobiographically or using myself as a character. That came from when I had a column for an alternative paper in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. And then I collected all those columns into books. And really since that time, well, my graphic novel was somewhat autobiographical, of course. That The character's name was Jonathan A. Yep. And bored to death, the character was Jonathan Ames. Indeed. But even that character wasn't... Well, I guess there was a lot of autobiography there. All I'm saying is that now, somewhat later in my life, later in my career, I'm not really working directly autobiographically anymore. I'm enjoying more hiding behind other characters. Um, and I think my time of confession as a writer may be over or over for now, but I'm glad if putting my foibles out there, if they did make some people feel less ashamed, that that would be a great benefit and service. But I, I can't really do that kind of work anymore. Um, Patrick Stewart, a.k.a. Walter Blunt, has some of your mannerisms, crotchets. Mm. Yeah? Well, some people have said, Jonathan, you're getting Patrick Stewart to play you, and that's not <laughs> at all my intention. <laughs> but no. I don't know, maybe that's how friends perceive it. I mean, I did give him some of my issues, like the 
He doesn't like to share a toilet with people. Yes. I don't I don't <laughs> like I mean I have to of course, but I, I've definitely given him some of my issues. But I, I kind of spread my issues around all the characters, the men and the women. Um there is that uh very early scene where he um picks up a prostitute who turns out to be transgendered and mm-hmm. uh wishes only to, as he puts it, suckle. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been a hard day, and I was thinking that's a very Jonathan touch. Yeah, I, well, I, I tend to. I'm, I guess I have a lot of oral fixation, a lot of need, a lot of. I don't know. I'm probably about seven years old emotionally and erotically. Unfortunately, maybe someday I'll grow up. I don't know. Were you a bottle baby, Jonathan? Uh, I I think I began on the breast and then was on the bottle and then they took me off the bottle by telling me that um, this mother raccoon uh, needed it for her baby <laughs> and I really I should mention that to my psychoanalyst actually that could explain a lot of things that this raccoon babies were more important than me <laughs> oh for for Jonathan is that true is that true um that's true yeah I mean it's not yeah, but it's not a great wound, but maybe it did something to my little lower middle class psyche. You know, it's so funny how parents use animals to communicate things like childbirth, sex, uh, weaning in your case. Mm-hmm. Um, I was listening to a very funny interview on uh, Terry Gross uh, the other day. A guy, maybe you heard it, I don't know, or heard about it. A guy who's writing a memoir about his dad, the pornographer. They lived a kind of straight middle class existence, and I think I think it was in Kentucky or something. But um, Dad, on the sly, at least not known to a lot of his friends and family, was writing hundreds of porn novels uh, and making mm. a living at it. Mom would type them, Dad would write them, and uh, Terry Gross asked him, "Well, how did they introduce you to sex? I mean, Dad's writing graphic descriptions of sex all day long, and he said mm. he said his dad gave him." A, a book on frog re- reproduction. <laughs> he was too embarrassed to tell him anything. He thought he could learn from frogs. Anyway, mm. animal stories and sex, I think it's a pretty interesting subject. Mm. I wonder how that guy's doing today. I wonder. <laughs> I hope he's doing okay. Uh, froggy style, I assume. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, don't they just like fertilize the eggs outside of the... That that would be I don't know I don't want to go there actually but um, yeah I um, don't know about the population <laughs> techniques of frogs and we will just have to leave uh, the details on frog copulation for another show because today we're focusing on Jonathan Ames his uh, life and his work uh, specifically these days as a TV writer and showrunner his latest effort is Blunt Talk which just premiered on the Stars Network and uh, before we get back to the conversation with Jonathan I just thought I'd give you a little flavor of the show. Uh, here's that scene we mentioned earlier where Walter Blunt, the character played by Patrick Stewart, is out on the town cruising and picks up a prostitute. Oh, would you like some whiskey or um, marijuana chocolate? I have both. Slow down, baby. Look, we should probably talk business first. Do you uh, know what type of girl I am? Well, you said you were a goddess and a model. I'm a transsexual. Do you know what that means? Oh, yes. I was at the U.S. Open in 77 when Renee Richards made her debut, but I would never have guessed that of you, which I hope you don't mind me saying. 
No, it's okay. Most people just assume I'm a biological girl or whatever that means. And does that mean that you have an intact penis? Why don't we just say I have a nine-inch clit? Does that bother you? No. I'm English. Okay. Uh, so what do you want to do? Um, might I nurse on your breast? Things have not been going well for me at work and at home. And uh, to suckle would be a great comfort. You just want to kiss on my titties? Yes, that would be lovely. Let's talk a little bit more about Patrick Stewart, the way he plays Walter Blunt. Um, I mean, I assume you've had an influence on that, but, you know, he's not known primarily as a comic actor, but my God, does he take this role and run with it. Uh, He seems to be just um, pulling out all the stops. Um, The character is wonderfully melodramatic. Uh, So so tell me about how that came to be. Well, I I don't know that I had any influence on his performance except between takes, I'd be like, Patrick, that's great. And <laughs> and Patrick, he, you know, he's vulnerable like anybody else. And he'd be like, really? Was that all right? You know, <laughs> and so, um, but he, he just, he's like a tremendous athlete. He just brought so much energy every day to the set and took every line seriously and was a great listener to his fellow cast members. And so just, I mean, this was like watching Barishnikov. Someone trained to pull out emotion and feeling and comedy and realism to make make believe feel not make believe. And he does it because he has a childlike quality in that he does like to play other people. He likes to engage and make believe, um, which I think all the fine actors that must be why they do it, or one of the reasons why they do it. So he just, I don't know what the German word is for, you know, he just has a great life source in him that he would pull from his lower British chakra (laughs) and give to us, the audience. And uh, so, you know, I was very honored to sit there on set and watch him do his thing. How is it that you have been... um... Uh, so lucky, uh, and maybe it's not luck, but in both the series that you've um, run and written, um, to have like just the the greatest talents to work with. Um, uh, in uh, Bored to Death, we already mentioned Zach Galifianakis and um, Jason Schwartzman, but there was the amazing Ted Danson. I mean, he was so amazing in that role as a kind of um, genteel, waspy uh, New York Magazine editor, probably influenced mm-hmm. by your love of George Plimpton, I'm thinking. Maybe not. Oh, yeah, very much so. Yeah. I, his, the character's name was George Christopher. Yeah. So for me, it was a combination of George Plimpton and Christopher Hitchens. Oh, Hitchens! Two, two, two very colorful <laughs> characters I had encountered in New York in the literary world. You know, larger-than-life intellects and people with great life force and, you know, I don't know, the kind of human beings you just don't run across very often. So I I, I married those two in my mind, which is why it's called George Christopher. Interesting, because he didn't have any of uh, Hitchens's, you know, bluster or abrasiveness, you know. 
Yeah, but I think he 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 had some of um, Hitchens like to drink, and I, I don't know. Maybe it was more of like the spirit, you know, uh-huh. that spirit of the New York world of letters. Um, and also, I had once like was drinking prosecco with Hitchens in Italy, and he was just this great romantic, hard living, brilliant individual. Um, and so, I don't know, I guess I wanted to honor him in my own way by putting part of his name onto this character. I don't know if he was ever aware of that. And then you know, he passed away a few years ago, as did Plimpton. Yes. Well, I saw the Plimpton. I didn't see the Hitchens, but, um, you know, it was, I mean, Ted Danson was phenomenally good in that role. Uh, and then you had all kinds of other people. It was like a who's who uh, of the comedy oh. world. Um, oh, and we had F. Murray Abraham, Kevin Bacon, Olympia Dukakis, who I mentioned earlier, Kristen Wiig, uh, I'm, Jenny Slate, John Hodgman, Jenny Slate, uh, Sarah Silverman. I mean, Oliver I, Pratt. Sure forg- <laughs> yeah, Oliver Pratt. I mean, so many great people. And you asked me how it feels to be lucky. Well, how did you even how did you even land I, these casts? Because again, Blunt Talk is full of terrific actors as well. Well, <clears throat> some people audition, you know. And I once, in some class of mine, I heard a professor say that Lillian Gish said that movies were about faces and music. So uh, when I audition people, I always look for interesting faces, you know, people that seem to have character and are a bit odd looking, perhaps. So. But then these other actors who, you know, don't audition, you send them the script and sometimes, you know, you have to meet with them and just kind of talk to them and say, like, look, let's just have fun. Tell me what you think of the character. I can try to change things and just really communicate and collaborate. Um, Collaboration is such a big part of this uh, enterprise. I mean, it's everything in this enterprise, not a big part. It's everything. A total act of collaboration. This friend of mine, I don't know if, he read his book, uh, Josh Wolf Shank wrote this book called um, uh, The Power of Two, all about collaboration. And I read it, you know, after I'd been collaborating for several years in TV. And, and it was just, <clears throat> it really is incredible what two people together, you know, how they make something larger than what the one person came up with. And that's what happens to me as a writer. I put these words down on a page. And then Ted Danson and Patrick Stewart and Jason Schwartzman, they just, they just fill it up and they bring it to life. You know, it's like a great hot air balloon. You know, they, they make it fly. Um, and the other thing you asked about being lucky about having these casts and these people, what's sort of beautiful I have found about making television shows is that you become like a family and you become dear friends with these people and, you're a little bit like a circus troupe or a, a summer stock theater or one big extended wedding. You get very close. You're working together. It's 12, 13 hours every day for months on end. And um, and so I think that's been the most wonderful thing is that I've, I've made all these friends. You know, sometimes you don't see each other for a long time, but it, it, they seem to be the kind of friendships because you spent so much time together where you just, the groove goes right back into the record and you're back, you mm-hmm. know, like no time has passed. And I love those kind of friendships. Yeah, it, it's, um, it sounds wonderful, really. Um, 
And, uh, you know, it's funny. I know you've, you're probably aware of this, but when uh, Jason Schwartzman talks about bored to death, he always talks about what a good friend you are. Mm. Well, he's my dear buddy. Um, I, I love him like a brother, and I never had a brother. Um, I married Jason, and I don't know, like, yeah, I mean, if he was a woman, uh, we could have been married or something. I mean, he's kind of a soulmate. But I also go a long time without talking to him. He's so busy, and he's got two kids and everything. But, yeah, he's the dearest of friends. And, in fact, maybe I'll call him after we hang up and leave him a message. Yeah, you ought to do that, really. You're reminding me funny a funny moment uh, again. I, I refamiliarize myself with just a couple episodes of Bored to Death, and uh, there's a scene I think in the first episode where Jason Schwartzman is talking to someone I can't remember who, and uh, the someone on the phone I think says "I love you," and he says, "I love you more than that." Mm-hmm. That's a line from your aunt, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my great aunt who um, passed away about about a year ago. Whenever we would part, and she was like probably another great friend of my life, and I was her main sort of caretaker with my mom, but for the last 20 years of her life, and certainly the last 10 years of her life in New York, you know, I was the main person looking after her, and then we had to put her in a nursing home in New Jersey, and she made it to almost 102, and Whenever we would part, especially in the New York years, I'd go see her like probably two Sundays every month or three Sundays. And then she would walk me to her little elevator and then I would say, I love you. And then she would say, I love you more than that. Or she would say, I love you more than you know. And then the elevator door would close and then I'd go out to the street and I'd walk to the subway and I'd look up. And she'd be in her sixth floor window in her kitchen and she would wave goodbye to me. Oh. And, um, but, so we had a great, we had a great love affair between a great aunt and nephew. And I was with her when she passed. I, I, I was in LA and I got a call from the nursing home and I didn't think I would make it in time. But I, actually the second week I was meeting with the writers and I, I said, I have to go to New Jersey and, you know, it's a lot of money to have writers on payroll but not working but I, I said I have to go to New Jersey and I didn't think she would make it but she she held on for another six days while I was there I didn't even pack a bag first two nights I, I slept next to her and then on the floor in the nursing home and then after that I would go to a motel at night around 2 a.m. and then uh, but then I was with her the last morning you know the last few hours and it was I had never been a part of something like that and but I was glad to be with her and I I watched every breath her last breaths and and then and then she was gone um and then a little while later some people came into the room said she's gone um and then she donated her body to science and so then they came with the ice and they and put ice all around her body. And but I loved her deeply. Hmm. You did a, a really um sweet radio piece with her in it, I remember, long long mm-hmm. long time ago. Oh wow, you know a lot of things. Yeah. I used to go and play cards with her 
And I would pick up this food at this Jewish delicatessen, and we'd play cards and eat the sandwiches. And I think the radio show was called The Next Big Thing, and this woman came and recorded it. And I recently, my mom found the tapes of that, but I don't have a cassette player. And I want to play them, but it's almost like I'm scared to hear her voice. Um, But, I mean, she's in my head, but I... I guess I'd like to hear that radio interview again. I don't know. Sometimes these things, like, I don't know, it might be scary to hear her so alive. Maybe it's just better for her to be inside me. I know what, you've, you, what you mean, because I have tapes of, a few tapes of, like, significant things from the distant past, and and, and I keep them, but I'm, for some reason, I'm really hesitant to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. You know, human beings were made a long time ago before tape recordings and things like that and photographs and movies. And so, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I I don't know. I just, I don't necessarily feel the need to listen to it. Maybe the pain would be too great. Yeah. And again, I... Lately, I've been reading these books by this Buddhist nun, Pema Chodron, and so I don't know if that's the correct pronunciation, but so much of what she writes about is about not being afraid of our pain, but I don't know that I would necessarily want to seek out that particular pain. Yeah, it, um, you might be surprised. I mean, it might not be painful. I don't know. Or maybe it's just too early. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm okay at the moment not hearing them. Yeah, but, and but I, you know, but then if I heard them, I'm sure there's so many great lines of dialogue I'd want to use <clears throat> because she was really, she was really funny. She, you know, she was from another generation and and unusual woman, and you know, she, you know, dropped out of school I think when she was 12 when her mother died to you know, run the family house with my grandmother. They had a boarding house at Saratoga Springs. And by 15, she was a manicurist at the hotels in Saratoga, catering to the racing crowd. And probably by 17, I think she would follow the racing crowd on these various um, resorts in South Carolina and Florida doing being a manicurist and so Probably by the time she was 20, maybe the family relocated from Saratoga Springs to Brooklyn. And, you know, she got married before World War II, but then I think her husband came back damaged from the war, so she divorced him. Oh, and the one thing I brought with me from New York to L.A., what I always loved in her little queen's apartment, she had these watercolors. She went to Paris in 1947, I think, to get over this failed marriage. And she had this, like, two-week love affair with a painter. And he he painted all these little watercolors with this redhead in them. My great-aunt was this kind of curvaceous little five-foot-two redhead. And I always loved those watercolors, so I told my mom that's the one thing I want. And so it was the one thing I brought with me from New York to L.A., and they hang on my wall, and they... And they tell this story of this two-week romance that she had with this painter in 1947. Wow. Two years after the war had ended, Paris. Yeah, and she went on her own. You know what I mean? She, yeah. She was, and, you know, this was a woman who didn't even go to high school and 
but she wanted to see the world. Is she is she someone you ever think about writing about? Um, I mean, I know you've done some, but well, yeah. I mean, I've written about her quite a lot. I've, a number of my essays and my essay collections are about her. There's a character based on her in my novel, The Extra Man. Oh, I didn't realize that. Uh... Yeah. And then in my graphic novel. So yeah, I, I put her in just about everything. One time, I was in a bar in Brooklyn, and this woman said to me. Are you Jonathan Ames? And I said, yes. She goes, let's have a drink to your great aunt. She must be a hell of a woman. Because <laughs> she had read about her in The Extra Man <clears throat> and just assumed that it was pure nonfiction, which a lot of it was. And so I was really happy that, like here I was in a bar at 2 o'clock in the morning in Brooklyn, raising a drink to the kind of lovely barfly of a lady to my great aunt who at that moment was asleep in her nursing bed home. And I thought her spirit is being toasted, you know, and that this woman thought she was a great woman. So I just, I felt happy that my book kind of gave my great aunt a second life. In a sense. Yeah. And a lot of people like me know who she was and, and feel fondly toward her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is kind of a nice thing, isn't it? Uh, you were talking about your friendship with D- Jason Schwartzman and some of the other folks you work with on the TV shows you've created. Um, it, it, it struck me in uh, watching both Blunt Talk and um, Bored to Death that the the real primary relationships seem to be between guys. I mean, in Bored to Death, they're all struggling with girlfriend relationships but uh, or ex-wives in the case of Ted Danson, right? Um, yeah. But uh, it's really a buddy show. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Blunt Talk, it's Patrick Stewart, Walter Blunt, and his uh, valet, Harry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least so far, from what I've seen. And, and then also remembering uh, some of your stories of your your youth. You have one very, very memorable buddy story about the Harry call, this, no- mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. noise you made. Tell me about you and, and buddyship, buddyhood. Well, I feel like Blunt Talk, we have more women characters, and hopefully as the season progresses, I they will really come to the fore also, and so that it won't be so much just about male friendship. So I'm hoping that I kind of grew a little with this show, not that it was a bad thing that the other show was so male-centric. I, I want people to feel good after they watch an episode of my show. I want them to feel uplifted um and so i want the characters to be kind to each other i mean i had noticed and i don't really watch a lot of tv but in reading the scripts of writers that i would hire or would consider hiring that all the characters were very unkind to each other and i thought well i'm not like that with my friends and they're not like that with me it doesn't really seem to be how people are and and so I wanted to, I guess, put out there a message of kindness and compassion. And and maybe for me, male friendship was a safer place to show that because I, I have so much confusion that I, I tend to mess up my relationships with women. And so maybe it's safer to show can work between two men. But I think in this new show, Blunt Talk, there's a lot of women characters, and so hopefully I'm a little bit less 
male-centric and a little less juvenile. <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to portray you as um, male-centric or juvenile, to tell you the truth. No, I didn't think you were, but I, I, that's how I refracted it. So I, I know you were being kind about it. <laughs> Well, it is um, it, it is striking uh, that in um, well, maybe not so much in the comedy world, but certainly in the drama world, where uh, we are preoccupied uh, these days, maybe we always have been, with violence and misdeeds and competition. Uh, your two comedies have been really, really gentle, um, and you said, as you say. There's a kindness in almost every interaction, you know. Uh, there's a softness, you know. Even even when things go wrong, uh, even when the Irwin character, uh, well, I guess that's the most violent scene I, I can remember is the Irwin character played by you st- stabbing stabbing Zach Galifianakis with a, with an exacto knife. Even but even that, <laughs> even that seems fairly benign if you watch the whole storyline, you know. Because after all, Irwin has lost his rent-controlled apartment, and that's oh god, that's a hard thing to take. Also, there was supposed to be a thing that he had a gluten allergy, and then when he was put in jail, <laughs> something oh, because of being caught naked, because Zach had chased him out of the brownstone, he was arrested for indecency. Oh no! Thrown in jail, and then in jail he. They forced him to eat a lot of gluten, and I guess I've read somewhere that gluten could drive some people insane. I don't know, but that was part of the whole backstory. Yeah, that was the most violent thing. I I was kind of obsessed with the fact that Monica Schellis, the tennis player, had been stabbed oh, yeah. from behind during a match. Yeah, and had always been deeply disturbed by that, and also just really upset that this great career was upended by that. I mean, she would have been, I mean, she is one of the greats of all time, but it really destroyed her, and it's unfair. But I don't know, that stabbing had always traumatized me, so for some reason I needed to re-express it. But I, I want my characters to, you know, they're trying to do the right thing. They're, they're all sort of Don Quixote. They're all, you know, questing and, and, and trying and going on adventures. And, um, and trying to help people and trying to help themselves. So I think that's what gives it hopefully, you know, a positive quality, you know, like a little bit like a, a Billy Wilder movie or something. I mean, it's a wonderful life. Maybe some people find that treacly or overly sentimental, but I mean, in my novels and I recently wrote a thriller that was just completely dark. So I'm not always trying to be Pollyanna. And also, in terms of TV production, yes, you do make great friendships, but also the stress and fear and anxiety can be so toxic at times. Oh, I'm hoping to do better this season, which is why I've been reading all these Buddhist meditation books. Um, so it's not just one big happy thing. It's like any job. There's a lot of hell. But that's, that. I guess that's, you know, the balance and everything. But um, to sound uh, overly simple. Is the um, is the fear and anxiety about um, budgets? Is it about network executives uh, who are uh, peering over your shoulder and may pull the plug at some point? What what is it about? Probably just massive fear of failure. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's, the writing is not going to work. The script is no good. The actors won't be happy. No one will be happy. You know, 
perfectionism, uh, one's own perfectionism. And then, of course, you know, the famous, I think it was Sartre, you know, said, hell is other people. You know, other people, (laughs) they've got issues and they push your buttons and, you know, and, and if you're exhausted and your emotions get all out of whack, you know, it's a, it can be a real roller coaster. And so you just, you know, you got to remember to breathe and, and listen and, and try to take care of your body so that, you know, under the stress and duress of production, you don't, you know, you're not hurtful to anyone. We mentioned that uh, Richard Lewis cast against type uh, as the mm-hmm. uh, psychotherapist as opposed to the guy, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, falling apart on the couch. Um, what's it like to work with him? And is he um, is he as neurotic as he uh, makes himself out to be when he's performing? I would say, yeah, he probably he's as neurotic as his <laughs> stage persona, but he's also he's become a really nice friend, and he there's, he has so much wisdom from having tried to deal with his own struggle, and he emails me quite a lot and signs his emails Doctor White. <laughs> and um, I had named the character Dr. Weiss, and it turned out that was also the name of a dear friend of his. So I think he's really enjoyed playing a doctor and playing a character who's trying to cater and help others. You know, he's a little bit of a loonless doctor, but like all the characters on Blunt Talk, he wants to help people, and he wants to help these people that get on his portable Freudian couch. So his heart, of, is in the right place and maybe the advice he gives isn't always the best and he's kind of nutty himself but he really does care about the, the staff of Blunt Talk and wants to help them eventually he gets almost all of them on the couch I've always liked him a lot um, I, I was at some invitation only small comedy event once and I was like found myself standing right next to him and I thought I really like to say hello to him but Boy, you know, I could just sense the nervousness, and I didn't want to invade, you know, his space. So I didn't say a word, you know. <laughs> well, I'm sure he would have welcomed it. He's a really a very nice human being. Well, Jonathan, you are too, and it's really nice to uh, to catch up with you. Um, I've, like I say, I met you when you were first shopping your uh, show ideas and hadn't had any success yet, and uh, I wondered how. How it had it all gone? I wondered what it was like to have Bored to Death and then to have it canceled and then to mm-hmm. to pick yourself up and, and, and do another series. So, well, I've just, I mean, through it all, I've just been trying to make a living, you know? And whether it was writing books or teaching or entering TV, I've just been trying to make a living and also trying to be a clown and entertain people. Um, but I appreciate you, you know, following me all these years and wondering what might become of me. <laughs> and I'm glad I've made it this far. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, following you in a non-stalkerish way uh, for years to come. Honestly, Jonathan, it's been really fun talking to you, and I'd love to do it again. Okay, well, likewise, and thanks for all your interesting questions. Jonathan Ames, his latest sitcom recently premiered on the Stars Network. It is Blunt Talk, starring Patrick Stewart. And you can see the first episode for free on the Stars website. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Powell. You can find out more about us and listen to past shows on our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. I'll be back next week. <laughs>